If you want to go to the dark side with an all-new season of Spook Storytelling, support the show that makes it happen, spookpodcast.org. All right, Snapadappas, to celebrate this season, we want to give you a little taste of Snap spinoff podcast Spooked. 13 full episodes available right now at spookpodcast.org. We begin, though, with a thought. You see, when some people pass away, we long for them to come back from the other side to check in. But other people, we hope we never hear from again. Spooked. My story begins in the spring of 1970 with our daily trek to school. Physical punishment was the norm in school if you didn't get the right answer. So there were difficult, there were hard days. So on the way home, we would kind of vent our frustration or have a laugh by teasing this goat that was tethered to a post in the field. We would stop and throw little pebbles at the goat and laugh at the goat jumping up and down and going crazy. Until one day, oh horror of horrors, the rope snapped. We never expected that. And before we knew it, the goat was bounding across the field for his revenge. We took off like the wind, screaming and yelling and crying. And we knew we were far from home. We were a good mile from home. So we had no alternative to run into the yard of our great Aunt Rose. She lived in a little cottage. And you didn't bother Rose unless it was really necessary because she didn't like children. But that day, the choice was getting mauled by the goat or the shelter of Aunt Rose's cottage. And we were terribly afraid of her. And she was my father's reclusive aunt and she was like the Wicked Witch of Fairy Tale. Very thin, very tall, wore long black clothes, grey hair tied severely back in a bun, a very grim-looking woman. But she comes out when she hears the racket with her blackthorn stick, which she always carried, and she shooed the goat away and she gave it a few whacks. So the goat took off. And then she turned to us and she said, "Um, I think you'd better come in for some tea. And I remember my brothers and I exchanging very nervous glances because we'd never been in her little cottage before, but we had no choice. So we followed her in to this gloomy little uh, den, a big hearth fire burning, crackling, ticking clock. I remember those sounds because she didn't speak at all to us. She went about making the tea and we sat down at the table and we were still very panicked and nervous and our faces wet with tears. It smelled of turf smoke. 
she had a what we called a crook over the fire which held the kettle with the hearth fire flames and boiled the kettle we were dying to escape and um, when the tea was finished we ran all the way home that was an incident that for me when i look back can be linked to what happened later on in that year In the summer of 1970, Aunt Rose fell ill and my mother took her in to our home to look after her because she couldn't cope on her own. She was a spinster. She didn't marry, she didn't have children. So people like that were ignored by the community. So they lived very lonely lives and when you're on your own for so, so long, you don't know how to be around other people. And the saddest part, however, is that, that no one in the community, when I look back, thought to go and visit her and kind of make her part of something bigger. If I could turn back the clock, I'd be, I would be definitely more compassionate and understanding. If I have any regrets, it would be that, that I didn't connect with, with Great Aunt Rose. But unfortunately, Aunt Rose kept getting worse. She died soon after. So, end of October, a few weeks after she passed on, it was a very stormy night. My little brother, John, got out of, out of his bed, went to our parents' bedroom and woke up my mother and said, I can't sleep, Mummy because someone is tapping under my bed. My mother said, John, it's the wind. It's a very bad night to go back to bed. But half an hour later, he was up again with the same story to my mother. I remember waking up, seeing the light on in the kitchen and being an inquisitive little girl, I got out of bed and went down to see what was going on. And we heard this tapping sound, very gentle tapping right under John's bed. It was like this, I'll do it on this table. The next day, naturally logical explanations were sought. My father took up the flooring, checked the water pipes, took the bed apart. My parents said, it's the bed, there's something wrong with the bed. That'll be all right. Well, he, he took off the mattress, checked the springs, and but the next night... When it happened again, we had to accept that this was something sinister. Everybody was up. The next day, my mother did the only thing she could do. She called in the parish priest. He came, knelt down in the afflicted room, and told us that it was the spirit of Great Aunt Rose, that she was having difficulty on the other side, and she needed our prayers for release. When a priest said something in those days, you believed it, you know. So, we started to pray. That, that day, and we prayed a lot. Knee, I remember my knees cold on the stone floor. 
Dear God, free us from this. Let, let Aunt Rose be at peace. Eternal rest grant unto her, O Lord. It's one that I remember saying over and over and over again. It was the least we could do was to pray for her soul. So it was an act of compassion on our part as children and my parents. We were to pray every, every day. We were to say as many rosaries as we could, which we did. I was very fervent in her prayers. We wanted to get her out of purgatory as soon as possible. The more praying that was done, the sooner she would be released. And for about a week, it was fine. We had solved the problem. Our prayers were obviously being heard, or so we thought. Until John was up again in the middle of the night. This time it wasn't gentle tapping. It was loud knocking. It was as if more and more prayers were needed. She wasn't satisfied that we were saying enough. The knocking was very loud. It moved out from under the bed and started knocking different points in the floor. After that, it progressed to banging on the walls of that bedroom. And I remember when my, when we would have visitors in the um, adjacent room, we would have to turn the volume of the television up really high because the banging was like someone was hammering, hammering wood. And my mother would have to say, we've got repairmen in. More priests came to listen to it. A mass, several masses actually were said in the room. I remember particularly this because it really was very frightening. The knocking stopped. It started to scratch. We heard the rasp of fingernails being dragged slowly along the underside of the mattress. It scratched under the table in the room, under the chairs. And I remember this night. I remember lying with the blankets pulled right up under my eyes, looking over at my two brothers, praying and hoping it wouldn't come into this room. I was just paralyzed with fear, completely paralyzed. And then, all of a sudden, the mattress was tipped straight up on its vertical and the two boys were flung out on the floor. And we dashed screaming and yelling from that room. So a turning point had been reached. You have to experience this in order to believe in it. And after that, sleep was impossible because you thought something was going to happen. My mother was at the point of a nervous breakdown. And that is when it was decided to call in the exorcist. The morning of the exorcist visit is 
very vividly etched in my memory. I remember that November morning in very stark contrast, monochrome, a foggy morning, and we're all waiting for the exorcist and his assistant. And then suddenly I see them in the lane, two dark figures advancing down the lane, and my mother goes out to greet them. He was a tall, lean man with grey hair swept back, and his look made all the more mysterious because he was wearing a cassock, a long black cloak, and he spoke very softly and gently, and there was a great air of calm about him. And when he met us children, he blessed each of us in turn by making the sign of cross, the cross on our foreheads and saying, God bless you, my child. Exorcists, they are conduits. They're people who have subverted their egos to such a degree that the spiritual is very much alive in their lives. And I believe that if we accept that there are forces of evil in the world, then that force of evil must be met with an equal vigorous application of good. So the exorcist is, is a rare uh, human being. Um, very special men do this work. What happened in that room that day? Well, the exorcist would read from the Rituale Romanum, which is the Roman rite, uh, Litanies of the Sea, Lord's Prayer, 54th Psalm, Salve Regina, Holy Queen. This took several hours in our case. There was a palpable feeling in the air that morning. The door to the afflicted room stood open, and we were beckoned into it by these two. And we all knelt down and we said a last prayer with them. And they got up and shook hands with my parents and said, that was it, it's over, and it was. We never talked about it. It was as if, if you talked about it, something might come back. Is it, is it too much to assume that perhaps being giving and kind in this life assures us of peace and uh, rest in the next? Big thanks to Krista McKenna for sharing your story with the Snap. If you want to hear more about Christina's childhood in Ireland, please check out her book, My Mother Wore a Yellow Dress. We'll have more on our website, spookpodcast.org. That original score was by Leon Morimoto. It was produced by Anna Sussman. When we return, my family pays a terrible price for the most innocuous substance of all, all that and an original score by Renzo Gorio. Stay tuned. The journey is not complete. Let the unbelievers know you are in search of the truth. Get the spooked t-shirt, the spooked hoodie. Drink your dark drinks from the spooked mug because an all new season of spook storytelling can't happen unless you make it happen. Make it happen. Spookpodcast.org
So we, my father, my mother, my little brother, and I, we stand on our newly purchased patch of Michigan farmland. The double-wide trailer home waits, still wrapped in plastic, a pair of boots sticking out from under it. The boots are moving because the man ain't dead. He shouts out and he's almost finished. Putting the last touches on the plumbing, wiry, sunburnt farmers stand around. Some spit into Pepsi cans. Others blink back at their new black neighbors. Then the man with the clipboard tells my pops, first things first, Bill. First things first, most important thing, more important than power, more important than sewers, water. He waves a few slow motion insects away with his clipboard. It's too hot even for mosquitoes. See, you're not just going to last out here without something to drink. It ain't like down there in your big city. There's no system to hook into here, see. So I've taken the liberty of calling Charlie here to dig you a well. Pinch-looking character nods his greeting. Of course, you'll make arrangements with Charlie directly, but Charlie's a fair man. My father looks at Clipboard Man hard. Took all we had to get this trailer here. Supposed to be all-inclusive. Charlie smiles tight. Clipboard Man smiles tight, too. They all switch to speaking low voices. Farmers lean first on one leg, then on the other. Finally, Charlie reaches out his hand. My father looks at the hand for a long while. I see him calculating, calculating, calculating before he sticks out his brown hand to grasp Charlie's white one. Charlie shakes, nods, then turns around to start unloading equipment from the back of his pickup truck. Charlie speaks in a voice loud enough for everybody to hear. Drill, where you tell me to drill. So, if you don't tell me where to drill, I don't drill. You point me where you think the water is. And I think what he's saying is that every time he digs a hole, he gets paid whether he hits water or not. The farmers, they start shouting advice like they're on the prices right. Do it over there by the willow, drill close to the trailer. Gee, they can't move the trailer. Have them drill where all them cattails are springing up. That's where the water is. Pops doesn't even look at my mother when he points to an indentation in the ground. Right there. Drill right there. Charlie sets up his drilling equipment. A squat antique contraption. He flips, nods, and sets weights before sticking a long metal rod into the top turns a hand crank on the side several times, the machine rumbles awake, huffs, and sets into pushing the rod inch by inch into the Michigan dirt. Farmers socialize under the engine noise. Charlie watches his drill like a mother, one hand on top of the machine, other hand pressed to the ground, making sure nothing breaks, nothing pops, nothing shatters, nothing bends. Not too fast, girl. Not too fast now. Machine pushes the tube straight down deep, 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 slow. Slow, slow. Finally, there's no more pipe left. Everyone waits for Charlie. Charlie checks and rechecks. Then he shakes his head. 
nothing. And if you know him, you can see that tickle of panic start to creep into my father's face. Again, the farmer started with the advice. Right there in a depression, follow the road system, it knows. My father, more careful this time, points to a different patch of ground. My mother bows her head in prayer. Charlie moves his equipment, starts drilling again. We wait. Then once more, Charlie shakes his head. He drills a third time, and for the third time, he hits dirt. Our new neighbors mill around with an oh-no look, understanding the fix we're in. This next drilling may be our last chance. Then a gray hair says, it's past time to go get Kriegel. Get Kriegel. And a scent fans back through the farmers. Kriegel, Kriegel, go get Kriegel. One goes off in a truck, and not 15 minutes later, an older farmhand, faded denim overalls, prances out of the passenger door like he's the master of ceremonies. Some people clap. This Kriegel is a man sporting a John Deere cap like everybody else, but he's got a swagger step like nobody else. Lean forward. I hear y'all need a well witching. Well witching? I remember Exodus 22:16 from Bible study. Thou shalt not suffer a witch to live. But instead of a sermon, Pop sets his face, walks over to Kriegel, kind of nods when he thinks my mother is turned away. Well, that ain't no problem, no problem at all. Kriegel hops over to a willow tree, takes out a pocket knife, and cuts himself a sapling, shaped like the letter Y. And stripping bark off each tip of his stick, he grins like he's holding back a secret. You know what? It was a colored who taught me this. So I'm doing this one free of charge. Farmers laugh. Kriegel skips around the trailer, each hand gripping part of the Y-shaped stick one end sticking out in front of him. Kriegel points it right, points it left, points it right. Hey, water, 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 come here, water. Hey, water, here, come here, water. Hey, water, water, here, water. Hey, come here, water. Where's water? Where's water? Where's water? Waves the stick around like it's sniffing something to bark at. And I'm thinking maybe he drank something beside water on the way over. I look over at my dad, knowing that he's about to blow. How dare this crazy person act a fool in the middle of our seriousness? Where you at now, water? Hey there, water, 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 cold water, cold water, cold water. Hey, water, 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 hey, water. The stick leaps straight down to the ground like an invisible hand grabbed hold of it. Gotcha! There's your water right there. So fast. The stick moves so fast. I saw it, but it's a trick. I can do some tricks. It's a good trick, but it's a trick. It's something with his hands. I know he's got to do something with his hands to make a stick jump like that. Kriegel looks at me, looking at him, and he laughs. Come here. He sets the stick in each of my hands. And I'm scared because I don't want to know real magic. Real magic is of the devil. But I have to know how he made that stick dance. And I understand that my mom and my dad, they're going to stop me, but... They stand frozen, stuck, allowing the 
white folk free reign over our new property. Kriegel shows me how to hold the stick in front of my body, waist high. Just like that. He walks with his hips out front and I copy, moving like he does. We'll see. Some folks got it, some folks don't. I think maybe now he'll whisper the trick in my ear when no one's looking. So I hold the stick tight, 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 tight in both of my fists. I feel silly and grin back at the farmers. But I hear a hum. The stick feels like it's almost shivering, trembling. I hold it tighter. Here, water, water. The stick twitches alive, whipping, writhing like Satan's own tail, sends a charge through my arms and plunges towards the ground so fast. The bark strips off in my hand. I fight the stick, pulling back as it stretches for the earth. We tussle, and I let it leap to the ground, and it lies there waiting. You're a natural! (laughs) Rising blood, the farmer's cheers, my rolling insides buzz together in my ears. What just happened? No way did this just happen. I snatch the stick up again and start from behind the trailer. It comes to life at once, riding like a snake, pulling me back toward the same spot, then leaping out of my hand. Look at that boy! My father turns his back. My mother continues mouthing prayers. My brother leans away from where I stand. Charlie sets his equipment. And this time, the drill tube slides into the ground like oil. The engine barely straining. Easy, 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 deep, 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 deep. Everyone looks to see, except Kriegel, who... Lays on his back, grinning up at the clear blue sky. Not a care in the world. Then, water. Cold, clean, delicious water bubbles from the drill, just like Kriegel said. The farmers holler and reach to touch Kriegel like he's the new pope. Happy to help, folks. Happy to help a new family, no matter what color they are. Charlie sets up pump over the well, hooks it up to the trailer, and we run inside and push up the handle on the new kitchen sink. The pipe burbles, spits air, and water rushes through our fingers. My brother laughs, but my mother recoils. Mama, she doesn't look at me. Mama, now there won't be electricity for another day or so, Clipboard man says, but you'll manage. Neighborhood ladies, they bring us casseroles. You people eat regular food, isn't that right? My mother thanks them all as they get back into cars and trucks to leave us alone in our trailer in the woods. My father inspects each room, knocks on the walls, complains about the shoddy nature of the fake wood paddling and the way workmen left mud all over his brand new trailer carpet but I can tell he's almost happy. He doesn't say anything about it, neither do I. As the sun goes down, we sit in the dark, try to eat something called tuna fish casserole with creamed corn. I don't say anything, because I'm older, 
my little brother whines. My mother says, we have much to be thankful for. And she appreciates the nice white ladies and promises to go shopping for real food tomorrow. In the bathroom, I brush my teeth in the dark with toothpaste and the brand new water. Then my little brother and I would crawl into the same bed. I think about magic and whether I'm a witch now. I fall asleep. I wake in terror. Feel the entire trailer shaking, here sobbing. I wonder if I'm having another one of those dreams. Then my brother grips my arm next to me, and I know it's real. I want to be the big brother to fight the monster, but I'm, I'm too scared to move. Our bedroom door glides open, seemingly of its own accord. A whisper. Get up. We cling to each other, tighter, trying to peer through the dark. Get up! In the moonlight, my father lurches wild-eyed, his face twisted, panic. We jump, run after him into the black through the door, him bumping blind, staggering hands outstretched in the dark. Through the living room shadow, I see my mother already bent over the couch in prayer, Satan came to me in the nighttime, boys. I saw him looking me dead in the eye. He told me since we drank his water, we're never going to see God's sunshine again. Never going to see it. My skin burns. Hellfire hot. I know it's my fault. We have to pray, boys. We have to pray right now. We have to pray and make the devil a liar. I have to make this right. I drop to my knees next to my mother who still won't turn toward me. Please, Lord. I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, Lord. Please let my family see the sunshine again. Don't trap them, Lord. The cries, pleas, the moans of my family wail like an evil wind through the living room, breaking in rhythm to my own. My brother wraps his arm around my neck tight, tight like he knows who's to blame and doesn't care. He shouts, you can't have my brother, devil. And I sob. I'm so ashamed, please have mercy. Hours pass. I drift in and out of lucidity, my face sticky with tears and snot. The darkness trembles. Then through our living room window, rays of orange and red stretch through the silhouetted treetops. We, together, we stop and watch glory color the Michigan sky. And we reach for each other. My father, my mother, my brother, all of us weeping, laughing, holy, victorious. We shake our fist at the sky, rebuking Satan in Jesus' name and shout praise. My mother sings, walk with thee in a loud, pure voice, and we all join in. I am weak, but thou art strong. Jesus, keep me from all wrong. I'll be satisfied as long as I walk. Let me walk close to thee. We are chosen, blessed. Nestled in the embrace of my family, I am thankful to know that our God loves us so much that he would even sanctify the devil's water. 
There's more where that came from at spookpodcast.org.